So tonight we're going to be in the second letter and the third letter of John. We're going to tackle both of these. Um, the first one is 13 verses. That would be the letter of Second John. And then the letter of Third John is 15 verses. So um, as long as you don't talk very much, we should be, uh, should be able to get through all of them in one evening. So we have been, as I've said so many times, been walking through, um, starting in Genesis, and we're going to go all the way through Revelation, but we're going to walk through each book of the Bible and just talk about who wrote it, who they wrote it to, when they wrote it, and maybe some big highlights about what the book is about, or maybe why it matters to us. So we are here, there's 27 books in the New Testament, and Second John is 24 out of the 27. And so after tonight, Lord willing, we'll have Jude and Revelation, and then we'll move on to the next iteration of study. But uh, we have just been trying to go through and say this is what this is what the Bible is, and this is what the Bible has for us. So <clears throat> similar to First John, which is where we are at. Uh, last Wednesday night, um, we said that First John, Second John, Third John, and what else is written by John? Gospel of John and Revelation. So these three. Now I told you last week. Sometimes you're gonna, you can, if you want to look hard enough, you're gonna find some book, some author out there questioning the authorship of John. It doesn't matter what book of the Bible it is. It doesn't matter how long people in the church have been unified in their understanding and in their affirmation that yes, John wrote it. You're always gonna find someone out there saying, "Oh, well, let me let me throw some kinks in the iron," but. Historically, there has been a lot of um, uni- not unanimity, uni- a lot of consension that John is the author, not only of the Gospel of John, not only of the Revelation, but First, Second, Third, and John. He's one of the apostles of Jesus Christ, probably one of the youngest ones that was called during the the, the uh, ministry of Jesus. Most people think that 1 John, 2 John, and 3 John, he was probably, during the time of writing this, he was probably down around the area of Ephesus. And he's probably writing this there towards the latter end of his life. Uh, Most scholars will date these two letters as being somewhere 90 to 95 A.D. So if Jesus called him to ministry, let's say around 30 A.D., and let's say he was a teenager, or maybe he was 20 years old at that time, and now you fast forward, um, 60 years, and so now he is considered one of the elder men in the church. He has a lot of experience, a lot of time, and so now he's writing it towards the ends of his life. And First John was kind of a, giving us an idea. This is how you test yourself to see if you're living the faithful Christian life. Well, then you get to the second letter of John, and even the third letter of John, and addressing it, instead of addressing it to the church at large, he starts to address it to a particular group of people. So if you see there in Second John, and in verse 1, it says, The elder, talking about himself, to the elect lady and her children. And we've got to be careful sometimes when we come into a letter like this. It's only 13 verses. You will have people that will start adding to. They'll start trying to fill in all the blanks that we have when we read through this letter. Sometimes you get to the end of the letter, 13 verse, and you're like, well, I, I, there's a lot of questions I have. And there's always going to be someone that's going to come along and say, well, we think this and we think that. 
The same way that comes to, well, who is John writing to? It says, to the elect lady and her children. And so you'll have some biblical scholars that will say that there was a particular woman in the church that he was writing to, that maybe this woman had written him a letter asking questions about the Christian faith and about the Christian walk. Some people have said that he was, when he talks about the elect lady, he's talking about the church because the church is known as the bride of Christ. And so when he talks about the elect lady and her children, He's talking about the church and the members of the church. But it doesn't tell us exactly because it doesn't give us a name and say, okay, I am writing to Jill, and this is her last name, and this is her address. There's no way to definitively nail down exactly who he's writing to. So you got one side over there saying he was actually writing to a physical, tangible, real-life woman with children. And you have another group over here saying he is writing, and he's talking about the lady being the church and the membership. I lean towards the idea that he is writing to the church. And the children are considered the members of the church. That's where I lean. Now, if you're like, well, how far are you leaning? I don't think it impacts the message of the letter either way. So if you're like, well, I don't, I'm not there, fine. We can have differences of opinions. We're not going to divide over this. It's just a matter of opinion at this point because we don't know exactly who, whether he's writing to the church or whether he's writing to a woman. However, whether he's writing to the church or whether he's writing to the woman, it doesn't change the message of the letter. The content of the letter, the principles of the letter are still true regardless of whether it was the church at large or a particular woman. He's still going to give the same instruction. So here in 2 John... He is talking about this idea of Christian love. Now, starting in verse 4, in the translation I use, um, it starts a whole new paragraph and what they call a pericope. Pericopes are defined by usually you'll have some type of a title above that paragraph. So you have the paragraph divisions and then you have the pericope. So like for instance, um, at the very beginning above verse 1, it will say greeting. So above verse 4, that kind of title, that kind of gives an explanation of what is coming. What do your Bibles say? Nothing. Nothing. Test Christ, the commandments. Test the Spirit. Test the Spirit. That's 2 John 4. Say that again, Miss Emma. Advice and warning. Advice and warning. What did you say, Harold? Um, walk from Christ's commandments. Okay. The reason I ask is because sometimes those pericopes kind of tell us, hey, this is what's coming. And, and we can have a variety depending on the, trans, the English translation you're using. What we're looking at, here in the one that I'm looking at, it says walking in truth in love. Now that kind of help lays out what the heart of what John is writing as he's writing this second letter. So main two ideas that you see out of the second letter is he's going to talk about love and he's going to talk about truth. Now when we think about love and truth, it brings the question, what is love? God. God, how else did we find love? Obedience. What? Obedience. Obedience. Okay. Caring. Caring. Passionate. Feeling. Unselfish. Attention to others. Sure. Okay. I'm going to just take a 
a shot here. I think amongst all of us in this room, we all probably have a little bit different definition of what love is. And I'm not saying that your definition is wrong. I'm just saying that a lot of times our definition of what love is, is colored or informed by our experience or maybe our current situation, right? So I got that little two-year-old and he says, I want ice cream. Well, in his world, me giving him ice cream is love. And if I don't give him ice cream, I'm not being loving, right? Right? Then as you get older, right? And now, now as you transform up, and now you've got this 15-year-old, okay, that's looking down at you, and you got this 15-year-old, and his attitude is, is love is letting me stay up till 10 o'clock and listen to my music. Because that's his definition of what love is. And so sometimes when we get in, in, in different stages and different seasons of life, how we define love matters. Because there will be times, if you have not yet, that you will be in the future where you will be tested to say, well, is it loving to compromise, to give in, to concede, to back up, to speak up? I mean, there's all kinds of questions about what is love and, or even how do we define love. And so you see there in verse 6, John writes and he says, and this is love, that we walk according to his commandments. So he's talking about this idea that we should love. This is the commandment just as you've heard from the beginning so that you should walk in it. So he's saying, hey, this idea, if we're going to be obedient to what God has told us to do, we have to love people. That takes us back to like John 13 and, and 34. He says, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So it's a theme that John has used, not just in his gospel, but he used the same definition or the same idea in 1 John, but he's going to say, hey, part of this Christian life is that you have love for other people. And not just that you have it, but you express it and you live out this love for other people. The danger is, is that our culture has a twisted way of corrupting what love is. And corrupting what is Loving, and what is not loving. And we're in a stage in our society, and not a new stage, but we're in a stage in our society that if you don't affirm my feelings and my emotions and my thoughts, regardless of if they're right or wrong, if you don't affirm me, you're being unloving. If you don't agree with me, you're being unloving. If you don't allow me to do what I think is best for me, you're being unloving. And we might think, well, that's just a, that's just a temporary thing. That's just a, a blip on the radar. I, I don't think it's going away anytime soon. And, and it's something that we're going to have to ask the question, well, then how do we define and how do we love as God has commanded us to love? So, he gives us this explanation. And he says, okay, <clears throat> why does it matter how we love? Well, he said up in verse 4, I rejoice greatly to find some of your children walking in the truth, just as we were commanded by the Father. So, he says this idea of love is connected with truth. Now, how do we define what is true? God. What God says? Okay. His word. His word. 
scientific method? Jesus Do we use the scientific method? Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. So Jesus is truth. Yeah, that's good. And that's one of the challenges that we're faced with. Because God's Word says this, and the Word of the world says this, and so many times we trying to walk out obedience to the Word of God, but then also be a light in the world, we find ourselves in a point of conflict and a point of tension because the world says, if you're going to love me, you've got to do this. And we're saying we can't do that because that is wrong and that is not true. And yet the world says that is what is loving. Where are you going? I have my nose. Okay. So we, we have to ask ourselves a question. What is true? So he says there in verse 4, I rejoice that you're walking in the truth. Now, why does it matter? Well, he says in verse 7, For many deceivers have gone out of the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is a deceiver and the Antichrist. Watch yourselves so that you may not lose what we have worked for, but may win a full reward. Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. What I hope that you'll see out of just this little short letter is the importance that John gives us when it comes to truth and when it comes to love. If I was to distill this down and just kind of boil this down, John is saying, you do not have truth without love, and you do not have love without truth. And we are being expected and we are being pressured in this world today to say abandon truth and love according to the definitions and the standards of the world. Now, let me ask you another question. Which is more important? Truth or love? Truth. Why? God says He does not change. Okay. So His truth does not change. Okay. So that should take us to love. Sure. Okay. You think the same thing, Granny? Mm -hmm. Okay. If you love something or someone, you tell them the truth. They're married, they go together. Agape love will keep you doing loving the way God loves. Okay. Anybody else have a different opinion? Which is more important, truth or love? I know no one's going to disagree with Miss Carol, but... (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's hard. I think we have to have love first, because then we can't have truth. Okay. It's hard to... So love would be more important, because God first loved us. Okay. (laughs) Okay. to say, how are you going to respond? How are you going to react? How are you going to speak? How are you going to interact with people? So I'm, I'm driving the school bus last Friday afternoon, and I've got these precious black-hearted sinners on this school bus, and you know, and they're looking at me like, you're supposed to be nice to me. I'm happy to be nice to you when you are sitting in your seat. I'm happy to be nice to you, but that's not good enough. You want me to be nice to you while you're standing in the seat worse than a monkey at the zoo. 
And that's not how this works. I'm sure Becky can tell you all kinds of good stories about some of her students that sit there and they want to be treated to a standard that they're not willing to behave to. And that's where we're at in the world and we're always being bombarded. And I think it's a, I think it's a timely question to ask ourselves. Okay, so John tells us you've got to have truth and love. The two go together like Mr. Allen said. You can't have one without the other. But at the same time, which is more important? So if, so, and maybe let me give you a little more where, I'm, where my mind is at. If I could only choose one or the other, which one would I choose? If I could only be loving or I could only be true, which one would I choose? Truth. Well, the Bible says speak the truth in love. Okay. Love so according they, to God. Okay. I'm not saying these are wrong answers. I'm just... Well, it's, it's hard to... Oh, never mind. <laughs> it's hard to deal with that unmentionable thing and still love without... Yeah. The greatest commandment is this. If you love one another, it's harder to love somebody. So here's where I'm at. If, if, which is more important? I would say truth. Because this is, my, this is where I'm at. You can have a different opinion and be wrong. That's okay. But my opinion is where I'm at is without truth, we do not have a definition of love. So if we don't start with truth, then we don't know what love should look like. And that's where I'm at. So Harold says, I'm going to start with love, and that's fine. We both have the same end goal in mind. We both have the same heart in mind. We both have the same desire in mind. We may just have, you know, he may take a left and I may take a right, but we're both going to try to, uh, the the goal is to be Christ-like. But where I'm at is you have to be true because if you can't start with truth, then love then becomes a moving object. And it's going all over the place. And that's one of the challenges we have. So as John is writing this, John is trying to make sure they understand, listen, both are important, both are necessary for the Christian life, and both are vital for the life of the church. And so do not not think that, oh, we will be a truth-proclaiming church first. Because what that does is that leads to a cold church, an unwelcoming church, an unfriendly church, an indifferent church, a church that is very exclusive. Or if we go the other direction and say we want to be a loving church, we want to love everyone regardless, and we just want to love, love, love. Well, there's also a danger because then we have nothing to stand on when it comes to the standards or when it comes to the Word of God. And this is, this is one of the most biggest struggles in the church today is how do we balance truth and love? You know, I've told you before, you know, so many times everybody likes a change, but nobody likes changing. Right? And so then as we move along year after year in the church, and, and some, some, of, some people, you know, they're like, well, you know what? I like the way we did it 20 years ago. Well, that, that's great, and that's good, and that doesn't mean what we did 20 years ago was wrong, but sometimes things have to adjust because we're constantly trying to reach more people. We're constantly trying to reach new people. And we're constantly trying to interact and connect with students and connect with teenagers and connect with different people we haven't connected with before. Now you'll have some out there that'll say, well, but you know what? We, we can't change our methodology. And why I think our methodology should bring glory and honor to God 
we also got to be careful that our methodology becomes stale and unloving. And you say, well, well, Spence, if you lean, you lean too far over towards the love, you'll end up falling off in the love, the, the love creek, and then you just won't be, you won't have any kind of standards, you won't have any kind of anchor. And I'm telling you, that is one of the biggest challenges in the church: is how do we balance loving people, but also holding to the truthfulness of God's word? That's a big challenge. And it's a big challenge for both people because you always will have those those that have a preference and those that have a heart for truth and those that have a preference and a heart for love. And you have both in the life of the church and they're both needed in the life of the church. And yet a church that cannot hold to the standards and the teaching of God's Word as truth will then just... Move to the lowest common denominator. But then the church said all they're doing is worried about trying to hold the traditions aren't loving. And that's a challenge. Does that mean? Do what, ma'am? You don't feel welcome if you don't have love. That's right. That's right. Now, does that mean that we as a church just say, well, you know what? We don't care about any of that. We're going to hold to this line forever. No. No. But we got to be aware. We got to be aware that both there is truth and love. There's something special about a mother and a father, especially in a parenting situation that's trying to live out biblical principles. Because in most situations, the father is meant to be the disciplinarian, the mother is meant to be the nurturer. And I realize you're like, well, this other couple. I'm just saying, biblically speaking, the husband is meant to be the disciplinarian. The wife is meant to be the nurturer. That means that when little Johnny messes up, daddy makes sure and helps him out with a little bit of extra attention. And mother is there to help wipe away the tears. There's both and that is there in that dynamic. So just as much as a struggle in the church, it's also a struggle in our lives today to find that balance or that rhythm between love and truth. That's a challenge. So John, here in 2 John, he acknowledges it and he says, hey, this is a challenge. Not to say, oh, you know what, just forget about it. Or not to say, oh, it's not a big deal. But John wants to make sure that you understand that, hey, both of these are important and both of these are necessary. And it's something that I think that you and I could, could, could ponder on, meditate on, think about for a long time about how do we find a rhythm? How do we find a balance? How do we do this? And if one of you all figures it out, I would love, I would love to learn from you because it is, it's a challenge. It's a challenge. Now let's go to 3rd John. 3rd John. Alright, so he was writing in 2nd John to the elect lady and her children. Now in 3rd John, he is writing to somebody more specific. He says there in 3rd John, verse 1, the elder, talking about himself, to the beloved Gaius. Gaius, you may pronounce it differently, that's fine. He knows how to pronounce his own name. Gaius, Gaius. So he's writing to a particular guy. But in this letter, he is writing to this particular person, Gaius. And he is writing about two people. So in 2 John, he was talking about the two big 
big emphasis that we see in God's Word. Truth and love. And, and finding how we live out both simultaneously. Here in 3 John, he's talking about a, another couplet, if you will. And this time, he's talking about two different influences. Two different influences that were there present in the life of the church that he wants to warn them about, that he wants to give them instruction about. And by extension, I I want you to see that these same influences, at least those influential types, are still relevant today. So, he talks about in verse 1, whom I love in truth. That is verse 1. And then you get down to verse 9. He says, I have written something to the church, but... Diotrephus, who likes to put himself first, does not acknowledge our authority. So if I come, I will bring up what he is doing, talking wicked nonsense against us and not content with that. He refuses to welcome the brothers and also stops those who wants to put them out of the church. So the first influence that he points out is Diotrephus. And he says, this guy is a bad influence. This guy is not doing the things of God. This guy is in the church, but he's also influencing the church to act in ways that are contrary to God's word. That's what he says in verse 10. He refuses to welcome the brothers. Also wants to stop those or stop those who want to stop those who want to and puts them out of the church. So he is there actively trying to steer the church in the wrong direction. But then he gives us a second picture. Verse 11. No, 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 no. Verse 12. Demetrius has received a good testimony from everyone and from the truth itself. We also add our testimony. You knew that our testimony is true. So he says, you've got two main influences of the church. You have Diotrephus and you have Demetrius. Diotrephus is bad. Not pursuing the things of God, not pursuing truth, is influencing people in a wrong direction. And then you have Demetrius. He is good. He has a a good reputation. He loves the Lord and he is trying to influence people in the right direction. So here in 3 John, he says you have these two influences that are both active in the life of the church. So how, how... Do we know the difference between the two voices? Or between the two influences? How do we know the difference between someone that is pursuing their own interest versus someone that is pursuing God's interest? I think through our obedience, God gives us a discernment to um, discern. Okay. By the fruit. By the fruit? Okay. Now we're not supposed to be judgmental though. The fruit is fruit. Some's rotten, some's not. <laughs> okay. From the smell? Yeah. Okay. So you're not being judgmental, you're just being observant. Is that what you're trying to get at? Yeah. Okay. So you're just observing? Is what they say in line with God's word or doesn't it? Right. Do you think those two voices are still present in the church today? How many church fights do you think have happened because you had one group over here that were trying to lobby for their personal interest 
And you had this group over here that was saying we need to be concerned about God interest. And because those two collided, now you have a church fight. Or how many times do you see people get out of the church either because they saw and didn't like the self-interest going on in the church or because they came into the church with their own self-interest and didn't get satisfied and so now they're gone. That's one of the reasons why there are so many churches. I Yes, ma'am. We don't like this, so we'll go start our own. Yes, ma'am. You know, they're, they're here. They're in the world today. Those, those types, if you will. I'm not saying there's somebody that walks around by the name of Diotrephus. I'm not saying there's anybody that walks around by the name of Demetrius. But you have those personalities still present in the world today. Those that have their own interests and their own personal desires and that is what they are ruled by. That is how they are motivated and it's all about what they want. And then you have others ones that say, you know what? I'm more concerned about what God wants. I'm more concerned about what God wants in my life. So, you look back up in verse 11, and it gives kind of an idea how to be discerned between the two. Beloved, do not imitate evil, but imitate good. Whoever does good is from God, and whoever does evil has not seen God. So he says, like Denise said, you look at the fruit. Now, people automatically say, oh, you can't be judging. You can be observant. Heard the phrase, there's no lesson learned from the second kick of a mule. It's one of those things. You just look around and you watch what people are doing. Or more importantly than that, you listen to what they're saying. In a society today, we do not listen to other people. We are just being quiet, waiting for the person to stop talking so then we can start talking. And we're not listening to what people say. And so many times, if we will just listen to what they're saying, then they're telling us exactly where their attitude is, what their motivation is, and where they're at. The danger that John wants to point out is, is these two influences are alive and well in the church, and you need to be on guard because both Both of these influences had people that were listening. Which is why it matters about the influences that we allow into our lives. Which is why it matters about the voices we allow to speak into us. Which is why it matters about the things that we're watching, the things that we're listening to. It matters. It matters because not everything that says the name God is motivated by a love for God. And not everything that says God is going to be representing the truth of God. And not everything that says God is godly. So we got to be on guard. We're going to be on guard because both of these influences... these influences are present in my life today. I'm not going to say about your life. I'm just going to tell you both these influences are present in my life today. And there's one side that says, oh, no, no, personal interest, personal desires, personal motivation, self, self, self. And there's other influences out there that says, God, 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 spirit, spirit, spirit. And both of those are present and both of those are vying for attention. And they're there. This coming year, if you want to go to a church church growth conference, you can go to one. 
And you can go to there and they can tell you all the trips, the tips, and the tricks, and the methods to grow the church. So if you say, you know what, we're sitting at 175 on a Sunday morning, I want to be at 500, they can go in there and tell you, you know what, you do all of these little things, 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 and your church will grow. There's books about how to grow a Sunday school class and, and all the things that you have to do, the elements that you have to be there. Years ago, I heard an evangelist. He was coming in um, to the community I was pastoring and he was going to be doing a, a revival meeting at a church down the road. And so we all got together and we were talking about how we could come together as churches and support this. And I remember him coming in and saying, listen, I do this as, a, as an itinerant ministry. I'm going to tell you that if you will do this recipe... I can guarantee you X number of salvations and I can guarantee you X number of decisions and I can guarantee you X number of responses. And I remember thinking to myself, this isn't the place for me. Did I go to one of those meetings? No. Why? Because I heard enough the first time. (laughs) I heard enough and just the planning deal Then I thought, you know what, if you can just tell me that a cup of sugar, a cup of flour, an egg, a little baking soda and some milk and all of a sudden this is what you'll get and we're totally eliminating the Spirit of God at all, I'm out. Have a good day. So you're saying you need a combination of both. Of love and we need a combination of love and truth, but we also yeah. need to be careful about the influences because there'll be influences in our lives and we'll have influences that even creep into the life of the church that their motivation is not the things of God, their motivation is the things of themselves. So it's love, truth, and influence. We've got to be careful about the, the voices and the influences that we allow into our lives. That's right. And and that's where John is at here in this third letter. He's warning them. He's warning them and saying, hey, be on guard. This stuff is real and this stuff is present and this stuff can wreck a church. Can destroy the church. First Southern Baptist in Chandler. Pastor had been there for a bunch of years. Recently died here, I think, in this last year or so. Brought in a new preacher, young man, comes in. Within the first month, he informs the church that that's his church. He's the preacher, and he'll do what he wants and how he wants because he's the preacher. It's not a good example. That's not a good influence. That's not a good motivation. Now, maybe that young man will learn. Maybe that young man will get some wisdom. Maybe that young man will get knocked on the head a few times at a deacon's meeting and maybe he'll come around. I don't know. But we've got to be careful. We've got to be careful of those influences that come in saying, it's me and not God. So that is what 3 John is addressing, is being careful. 2 John, truth and love. 3 John is being careful about these influences and how much power these influences have, not just in your personal life, but also in the life of the church. So he covers both of these dangers. Now some people may think, oh, well he's writing in 90 to 95 AD. He must be writing about a whole slew of problems that don't have any kind of impact or have any kind of relevancy today. Quite the contrary. 
The reason why God's Word is timeless because the principles and the truths and the applications that we find in God's Word, even when it was written in the first century, still have relevance to our lives today. So you think about 2 John, you think about 3 John, there are still things that you and I can learn. So I hope, I hope that when you come to these two, you won't think, oh, see that's written to, that's written to the elect lady and this is written to Gaius. Doesn't matter to me, doesn't apply to me, and we just move right on. I hope that you'll look and to see, hey, he is addressing an issue that is still real and is still present today. And it's issues that we may not talk about a lot on a Sunday morning, but it's issues that impact our daily Christian walk. It's issues that will have an impact in our spiritual growth. It will have an impact in the effectiveness of the ministry of this church. It will have an impact in what we say, what we do, and how we respond. Other questions?